Oh yes, hello. Hello and welcome. Let us tell you about a big weekend in the EFL on the Not The Top 20 podcast sponsored by Betfair. A weekend in which Sheffield United sharpen the knife to solidify their Premier League prospects, even in the face of Hatters and Burroughs' impressive levels. Millwall won the playoff powwow with Preston and press on towards May, but one, two, three, four other potential playoff party crashes won as well to blow six spot wide open. Blackpool at the bottom. They took a Hopioid, the only team in the bottom 10, to win in the championship. In League One, Argyle in Devon, heaven. Just 11 points needed now. Same for Ipswich, who hit the six switch, while Wednesday went for a Burton. Big dunk sunk as FGR's relegation is confirmed and Oxford's bridge is shorn by Cambridge's form. There was also a pleasing amount of bedlam and venom and heads gone elsewhere in League One. And even a surprise managerial sacking, which we'll get into. In League Two, the team from Leighton sat on Sutton. Bradford and Stevenage, the big winners, as they jump the last well and begin the long run up the hill. Crawley creep out the zone. Plenty to play for across these three magnificent, maddening leagues. Warm welcome to you all. This is the NTT20 podcast, sponsored by Betfair. Hello, mate. Hello. It's getting good, isn't it? I think it's been good since the beginning of the season, personally, mate. That's my view. (laughs) Yeah, but it's a different type of good right now. I can physically feel EFL drama almost all day every day and that is that's unusual it feels and i always worry about these monday pods that we do on a tuesday where there's a full slate ahead of us in the next 48 hours because things date pretty quickly but it does feel like a very short you know you've you've got big results happening on saturday that completely change where we are where we are in terms of where where teams are in terms of their prospects at the end of the season. But then we're going to be sitting in 48 hours' time and all of that would have changed again. I know. So, you know, it is thick and fast. I mean, it's it's crazy that it's the 17th of April now. We've still got five games to go for some teams and yet it's all going to be done in three weeks. Uh, let's get into some action, shall we? Uh, hopefully some of you will have whizzed through this morning's EFL newsletter by NTT20. Uh, if you haven't... Incredible newsletter. His words, not mine. Incredible newsletter uh, that gives some weekend notes on all the games, uh, links to the highlights as well. I even in this week's iteration uh, chose the top five best matches whose highlights you'd want to watch if you only had 10 minutes to watch highlights, which I thought was uh, a nice touch because realistically, you're not going to watch all 36. I've curated the best of. So go and enjoy that. NTT20.substack.com. George, at the top of the championship, Burnley drew 0-0 with Reading. There was one big chance, really, for Benson, the dribbly Belgian not known for his 1v1 finishing and, and a good save from Lumley. Otherwise, a pretty solid display, I think, from Noel Hunt's Reading. Uh, and you know what? A massive point, given results elsewhere. We're going to get into the relegation picture shortly. Also notable was the fact that this draw meant that Burnley cannot beat Reading's points record of 106 championship points. That The club tweeted reading this is a celebration of the fact that their record will not be beaten and they they got quite a lot of heat from other fans saying well, this is a bit tin pot you're in the bottom three you might get relegated why are you celebrating this sort of thing I, I wonder what you think about that personally I, I don't mind it I don't think it's tin pot I think they're proud of an absolutely astonishing points tally and they should be yeah you should be proud of your history I think too right to, to celebrate the um, maintenance of a, of a record that you know, in my mind, given how strong Burnley have been, given how dominant we've seen Leeds be recently, Fulham be recently, the fact that none of them have 
come particularly close to breaking it. Just shows how impressive it is. I was pleased that they tweeted it because it gave me uh, a nice bit of perspective on on just how special uh, that team was. Uh, let's drop down to the second automatic promotion spot, Sheffield United. In the lunchtime game on Saturday, they beat Cardiff 4-1. Had to do it from behind. Yeah, they didn't. And they did it, you know, I, I think having gone 1-0 down at home, sorry, Cabba scoring the, the goal, a penalty, a winner for any better fair column readers, um, which is always nice. Yeah, Sheffield United kind of did what they do. Um, they dominated from set pieces. They, they were the better team overall, whether that was reflected in the 4-1 scoreline, I'm not entirely sure. You know, a couple of late goals to give it some gloss um, frustration for, for Cardiff, although I, I still think Sabri Lamucci. It's weird where, you know, the results aren't great and they're certainly closer to relegation now than they were when Lamucci took over, but I still have this nagging feeling like they're a better team than, than they were before he came in, which I can't really quantify. I keep coming back to that Rotherham game and how different their position would be had they won that. Um, there's no, you know, for, for those who have been living under a, a rock, um, it was a game that was abandoned shortly after halftime with, with Cardiff 1-0 up, and it's going to be replayed in a, in a week and a half or so's time uh, on a Thursday night. You know, it, it does feel like if they, there's no suggesting, you know, they might have gone on to lose the game, but um, there's no denying that they had more chance of winning that game from 1-0 up after 48 minutes than they'll do from starting at 0-0 in a couple of weeks. And if they had won that game, then they'd be in a very, very different position right now. Yeah, I had something interesting on Lamucci, and this is with thanks to El Arbitro, Hugh Davis, who was messaging me about this on Saturday. He's someone who I think has made Cardiff into a team that, in my opinion, and it sounds like in yours as well, are better than the teams in the relegation zone. And so through pretty simple logic, I'm still confident that Cardiff won't get relegated from the championship this season. And if they don't, I'd be like pretty interested in how they might look next season. There's just this little weird streak of two games in which Lamucci has made some like really proactive, quite punchy uh, changes, either substitutions or tactical changes, neither of which have really worked, I wouldn't say. So on Easter Monday against Sunderland, when it was still nil-nil, after about 35 minutes of the game, he whipped off Philogene and Ojo. He took off his two most... You'd say most creative or skillful players, probably their biggest uh, attacking threats outside of Sorry Kaba. He he subbed them off with after 35 minutes. He wasn't happy with how they were applying themselves, and he wanted to send a message to the team as a whole. Obviously, it didn't have the impact that he wanted. They still lost that game. I will defer to Cardiff fans to to tell me whether that tweak you know made things better or worse or made no difference whatsoever. But even so, a 35 minute double sub is. Not the sort of thing that you want a manager to be doing loads. Managers normally say themselves it's an admission that they got it wrong to start the game, which obviously isn't a good thing. And then in this game, they had a good first half, as you said. Simpson came off at half time. He was on a yellow. He hadn't been playing very well. And he brought on Calamo Dowder. Now, he has played uh, left wing back quite a lot this season. But the, the obvious, I would say, the more standard, the safer option would have been to bring on Marlon Romeo to play right wing back and move NG into the back three because he was playing in the right wing back position. Now, you have to say with hindsight, it didn't look like a great call because the 10 minutes after half time in which O'Dowder was playing a left-sided defensive role, Joe Rules, who started the game at left wing back in a back five, was also playing a left-sided defensive role. Neither of those players historically or naturally left-sided defensive players. So it looked a little bit awkward to me. Uh, they obviously you know, lost the game pretty comfortably in the end. And I just felt like... 
it's, it's obviously really difficult being a football manager, but after a first half in which they were really good opponents and, and making things difficult for Sheffield United, the, the 10 minutes after halftime, that can be a great time to put even more pressure and create even more awkwardness for an opposition. And the opposite happened and, and Sheffield United pulled clear. So he's obviously trying to stamp some, some managerial authority on the team. But there's quite a fine line between that and and sort of overdoing it a little bit and and being a bit too proactive in your changes, I think. Anyway, I'm not that worried about them overall. I think they'll stay up, but just a little notable from the last two two games flagged by Hugh. Uh, As for Sheffield United, they have shown no little bottle in the last few weeks. And I know you love that word. Yeah, when we get to to April, there are two things that will always happen to me every year. Uh, One is that I get way overexcited about the Masters for a week. And the second is that I just can't stand the use of bottle in general football parlance, where it's happening at the moment in the chat and in the Premier League, are Arsenal bottling the Premier League? Um, And it kind of, you know, the the argument is dominated by the points that they've dropped from winning positions and the rest of it. Whereas actually, if you look at their run of form recently, it would normally be enough to solidify their pace at the top the reason why they're being chased down is more because the team who are chasing them down is winning every single game so could you be accused of being of bottling the Premier League if you're averaging over two points per game and the team that are chasing you down are winning every single game not for me but everyone else seems to think so having said that if Sheffield United throw it away from here it's hard to see how they wouldn't be bottling it because their um, lead is so great now you know despite Luton and Borough themselves being in, in pretty decent form and maybe the kind of form that you'd expect would be good enough as it was for a time to to see them bridge the gap I think any wobble that Blades might have had is now surely over they're five points clear of Luton they've played a game fewer if Luton win their remaining four games they will get to uh what 86 points Blades is currently on 79 so seven points from their last five games would be a pretty pronounced and marked drop off and that would also see them you know with an 11 goal different swing to, to squander from that as well so um yeah I mean I, I, obviously you and I want there to be a race we want there to be to go down to the wire to the final day to see who's going to get promoted to the Premier League but I would be amazed if Burnley and Sheffield United aren't wrapped up as our promotion winners well before final day I am full of admiration for the way that Sheffield United have, have managed the last couple of months, in particular with, with the cup run alongside it. And of course, they head to Wembley on the weekend to play Manchester City, but they're at home to Bristol City on Tuesday night and a win there would put one and a half feet in the Premier League. Um, George, the two chasers still kind of doing their bit. Obviously, Borough uh, didn't have a great Easter weekend, but they're back in business, beating Norwich 5-1 on Friday night. Um, 5-1 up by about the, the 50th minute. And Rotherham uh, hosted Luton and the Hatters just kept on going with a 2-0 win. So which of those two do you want to go with first? I think the Luton win over... Um, yeah, I think the Luton win over Rotherham is is sneakily impressive. You know, there's no... They're, they're very different, these two, in terms of, on the face of it, if you're someone that hasn't doesn't follow the championship very closely, who just looks at the results, looks at the teams, you would think that a 5-1 home win over Norwich is a massive statement result. And of course it is. Like, it's an unbelievable result. It's a great way to bounce back um, for Borough themselves. Um, but Norwich's performance in recent weeks under David Wagner have been... Like incredibly poor like I, you know we've seen this happen not at Huddersfield necessarily but he seems some of Wagner's teams um, have gone through periods of being barely even a you know a functioning football team and there have been a few performances recently I mean I know that was certainly the case for a while at Schalke 
there have been a few performances recently at Norwich that have made me pretty concerned about where they are right now. And, you know, it seems unlikely for me that they're going to, unless we see a huge turnaround, going to force their way into the playoffs. So, yeah, I mean, an amazing result for Borough and completely dominant in the way that they did it. Um, but maybe not quite as unexpected as you would think. And then you may look at a Luton 2-0 win at Rotherham and think to yourself, well, that's to be expected. But I'm not really sure that's fair either because I think Rotherham have been really impressive in recent weeks. If we if we look at Rotherham's previous um, home game to, to this one, it was when they played against uh, West Bromwich Albion and absolutely thumped them 3-1, like completely mm, battered them. them. Um, and yet Luton turn up at the New York Stadium and restrict Rotherham as they do basically against any opposition that they play, restrict Rotherham to, to basically nothing. And a real moment of quality from Carlton Morris for the first goal and then Corley Woodrow with a penalty to make it 2-0. And that is what, you know, I, I think in a kind of microcosm, we saw what these two teams are all about, where Borough have this incredibly slick attacking, you know, the verve at which they attack, the combination, the partnerships between their front players is so impressive that when it clicks, it's basically impossible for opposition teams to live with and it doesn't really matter that they're defensively fairly frail. And then you've got Luton, who may not be the best offensively. I think Carlton Morris racking up 18 goals for this Luton side is comparable to the to what Trooper Akpom is doing, purely in, in the case being that one plays for a side that creates so many chances then you've got Morris who has to basically do everything up front for a Luton team that are based on an incredible defence where in every game that Luton play you can basically be sure that the opposition side even if they play poorly aren't going to be able to create a great deal and I think that's going to make the playoffs really interesting where unless there's a big um, shift between now and the end of the season it is eminently likely that we're going to have Luton as being the the big favourites for one semi-final and Borough the big favourites for the second semi-final and from where I'm sitting, they are both miles above the other teams who are trying to get into this chasing pack. Coventry maybe being the the one outlier where you'd say that they have a a level that is you know maybe comparable. Um, and Millwall, of course, you know deserve massive respect in terms of what they're doing too. But you know Luton and, and Borough, there's a reason why they're clear in third and fourth. If these two teams were to meet in the playoff final, it is, and I feel like you and I use this cliche a lot but it really would be unstoppable force against an immovable object where the, the clash of, of styles of mentality of strategy really in order to win football games are so chalk and cheese yet however they are both incredible at what they do with Luton just being such a solid defensive unit and Barra such a slick attacking unit so you know I might be jumping the gun here in mid-April previewing the playoff final but I do really hope we do see these two sides and we're going to see them playing in the league fairly soon in a game where you know without as much riding on it you know I don't think it's necessarily going to tell us that much compared to a game where the winner takes all and gets to the Premier League Luton 11th away clean sheet in 21 games so more than 50% of their away games they've kept in a, a clean sheet it's their longest unbeaten run in the second tier for over 40 years um, and I know I'm a bit weird about two-footedness ambipedalness but um, the Morris stuff is ambipedalness yeah that's the word for it Right, a lot of people don't know that (laughs) Um, Carlton Morris has scored 18 goals 7 with his right foot 6 with his left foot 5 with his head I mean that is it's incredible there are goal scorers who some goal scorers who can have a career towards the top level who score disproportionately with their right foot, let's say, 80% of their goals with their right foot. There are goal scorers who are 
unbelievable in the air and probably score a, a big portion of their goals with their uh, head. And they're probably not also great finishers with both feet. Uh, Morris really has it all on that front. And, you know, it's it's part of the reason why he's able to create chances for himself like he did in this game, where the threat of him shooting, even from a really narrow angle with his right foot, was enough to make the defender dive in. But Morris is comfortable enough cutting back onto his left foot and then actually has a you know a better chance, a higher probability shot with his with his left foot and still just roofs it. Like the quality of the finish was absolutely uh, brilliant. Uh, Cody Drama looked really good on the highlights here. Um, I spoke spoke to Joe Donahue about him last week, who uh, covers Leeds United, is is of scouted football fame and a great friend of the pod and. He was asking my thoughts on on Drame and I just said, look, he came in for James Bree, who was one of Luton's really strong, strong players. And in particular, you know, physically and with his athleticism was huge for the way that they played. And Drame's replacement of him has been flawless. You know, I'm sure there'd be Luton fans who would argue he's even better. I don't really care too much for that debate, but he's been brilliant. And if they'd had, if they'd brought in someone that had not been able to hit the ground running and had not been able to replace what Bree was offering, I really think they'd be many, many points worse off because the way that they play means that the fullbacks, the wingbacks rather, they do get a lot of the ball. Uh, and the the quality of Doughty and Drame uh, over the last few months has been a huge reason why Luton have been able to win so many games. Um, it's expected that he'll leave Leeds in the summer. And I don't know if this is realistic or whether there may be a lower another Premier League club or or maybe a Bundesliga team or someone like that in for him. But if I was a championship head of recruitment, he would be right at the top of my list this summer if he's available for for a decent uh, price, uh, drama look quality. As for Borough, well, Cameron Archer got two goals and two assists here. Uh, it means that, <laughs> George, he's got 14 goal contributions. That's uh, his eight goals plus his six assists, 14 goal contributions. Uh, only 17 championship players have more. And 17 sounds like quite a lot uh, until he realised that Cameron Archer made his first start of the season in the championship on the 28th of January. Uh, he is running at 1.17 goals and assists per 90, which is quite remarkable. Him and Akpom doing the business there. Uh, the big one in the championship playoff battle, George, was Millwall-Preston, 2-0 to Millwall. How did this one go? Just to say for the listener, I'm very sorry about this banging. It is really annoying. Apologies. <laughs> We're trying to work around yeah, it. Yeah, <laughs> apologies um, if it is putting you off today, but there's not really anything we can do. Millwall coming into this in poor form in terms of results. You know, we flagged um, in our preview newsletter um, on the Substack that actually, you know, their expected goals in those four games was around 4.5. They were being very wasteful. So, as is often the case, they then play at home against Preston. They don't create very much, but they are clinical. Um, a really good header from Tom Bradshaw with the opener. Zion Fleming with it with a great second. Preston had their own chances. Um, Tom Cannon with a really bad miss, I thought, which was annoying, giving up, put him up for, the, for an anytime goal scorer where he, it was a rebound off long and you think he's going to put it in the in the near corner, but he goes back across goal and the, the covering defender's there to make the block. Um, but Preston put in a decent performance. You know, they didn't. I don't think they came away from this um, you know, whilst it's a huge dent in their playoff hopes, they didn't perform badly, uh, and that's just the way it goes sometimes for Millwall, where eventually um, things were gonna were gonna click into place. I don't think there was a massive drop off in performance from Millwall, and um, I think in terms of mentality to come into, you know, that there are similarities between this game and a playoff game in my mind, where Millwall go go into this knowing that they're in the best position to finish in the top six, knowing that if they lose the game, they're gonna fall out of that good position. 
and yet are able to grind out a, a, a win to nil. So um, yeah, they part they pass the first test, I guess, in terms of their suitability towards what's coming at the end of the season. Well, their next three games are against Birmingham, Wigan, and Blackpool. Three teams in the bottom eight of the division. You'd think two wins from those, and they will probably be able to chill for a week before the playoffs started, which could be quite valuable. Uh, Blackburn nil, Hull nil. This one, the evening game on Saturday. Blackburn had to sit there all afternoon and watch four of their challenges uh, pick up three points, then hosted Hull, and they didn't turn it on. Uh, one big chance each, really, for Dolan uh, and one for Syed Manesh. Neither of them taken, and uh, and it's dropped points, really. At this stage of the season, uh, you could hear the frustration from the Ewood Park fans. Uh, Blackburn, nil, Hull, nil. How about those chasing Blackburn? Uh, yeah, all of them basically winning it seemed other than Norwich who'd been thumped on Friday night we had QPR nil Coventry three Coventry now one point behind sixth place Blackburn Rovers and playing them on Wednesday that'll be a massive game two teams who are very good at attacking in transition Blackburn and Coventry Coventry showed it here against QPR all three goals incredibly similar really in that they were counter-attacking goals. Uh, one of them, just a really quick turnover. Uh, they worked the ball forward quickly and it was finished off. And then the two goals in the second half, very, very similar. QPR committing men forwards uh, and not being careful enough in possession, not being good enough with their shape, not being good enough in terms of, yeah, kind of protecting their centre-backs. I, the, the QPR centre-backs, it strikes me, are the ones who are getting the most flack at the moment, whether it's Dickie, Dunn or Balogun. I've seen some heavy criticism over all three of them over the last two months or so and you know watching a lot of the goals that QPR have conceded I, I haven't got a huge amount to defend what they're doing necessarily but I would say that they're not getting much protection I don't think from the midfield either from the wide areas either and that was definitely the case here like I'm not blaming the back three or the back four rather for how they handled uh, Coventry's counter-attacks with Harmer um, and Godden or Walker and, and Jokeresh as well. Like that's a really difficult scenario to be put in and it's not their job to stop the scenario. You only need really one good pass if you're Coventry. You need one really good forward pass into Gyok, which they get quite a lot from Sheaf and from others. Uh, and then you just have a dangerous attack as we've seen all season. So it was. I, I thought it was exciting to watch from uh, that point of view. I love watching Coventry in full flow when they're attacking like that. I like watching Blackburn, funnily enough, when they, when they can create those moments as well. So that game will be interesting on Wednesday. Um, question about Gareth Ainsworth, George. This one... Also from El Arbitro, from Hugh Davis, uh, who's got a few questions at the moment about championship football, saying, how much has the past six weeks or so damaged Ainsworth's reputation, the reputation that he's built up uh, at Wickham? If his standing suddenly does become a lot lower, if he takes QPR down, for example, how fair or unfair would that be when measured against his past record in your eyes? How harshly do we judge him right now? I think you cannot judge what came before QPR in any different kind of a light because of what's happening now. You know, nothing will ever change the revolutionary job that Gareth Ainsworth did at Wickham Wanderers. And just because right now things are going apparently badly for, for QPR doesn't mean that it wasn't him, doesn't mean that it wasn't his architecture, his genius that saw Wickham rise from the bottom end of, of League Two up to the Championship. And then, you know, leaving them maintaining a level of, of the top half of League One fairly consistently. However, there is just no denying that right now, his method of management, whether that is tactical acumen, whether that is a man management style, 
a motivational style is categorically not working. Like it is, it is a naught out of 10 job that he's doing right now at, at QPR. Is that his fault? Yeah, I think it probably is. And, you know, we know, and we've said it so many times, that this QPR squad was recruited to play a different way. Now, I can't remember where I remember hearing Gareth Ainsworth saying this, so I can't be 100% sure and I don't want to put words in his mouth, but I remember either him or, or being told that he had said, you know, that he had to play a certain way at Wickham because of the, you know, what the tools that was at his disposal. If that's true, then surely when you go into a QPR side, you know, with the likes of, of Ilias Chair and, and Willock and, you know, other technically gifted players, you tailor the way that you play in order to suit those players. And right now, the, there is the feeling that he is absolutely not doing that. You know, it is an attempt to redefine the way this QPR team play by being very, very direct. Um, but you know, the thing that we associate the the best Wickham sides under Gareth Ainsworth with, in my mind, more so than the attritional football and the, the target men and the rest of it, was that defensive solidity and the incredible efficiency from set pieces. You know, that is what it was built upon, was, you know, and centre-backs whether it was Aaron Pierre or whether it was Alfie Mawson or, you know, or Anthony Stewart, you know, these were the rocks that those Wickham sides were built upon, Ryan Tafazzoli. The QPR defenders at the moment are playing very, very poorly. There's none of that efficiency from set pieces in either box too. So what are you left with? You've left with a style of play that doesn't suit the, the players. You're left with players underperforming, a real lack of, of goal threat. You know, when you've got Chris Martin, Linden Dykes, who are not proficient goal scorers anyway, leading the line as target men, and not much really in behind, that doesn't really suit the attacking players that were brought into the club. There's not much left. So, yeah, my opinion of, of Ainsworth as a manager has definitely been altered a little bit by just the lack of flexibility and the lack of problem solving beyond just an attempt to motivate. Um, having said that, given two windows to bring in the players that he wants to bring in do I think that Ainsworth will be a success at QPR I think he probably could be and probably will be whether or not he's given the opportunity to be in either league I'm not entirely sure I find it very hard to see him leading QPR in in League One next season purely because this isn't a case of somebody coming into a club when they're already destined for relegation you know whilst he may not have to take the full brunt of the blame for this in my mind, of the three managers that have been in charge of, of QPR this season, it would be Ainsworth who has overseen the worst period and the period that's taken them in, in, into this relegation zone where they are now. I know that the Critchley stuff was, in terms of results, was incredibly poor, but in my mind, the performances themselves have got even worse. And that is, you know, it was pretty hard to do given where they were when he came in. Sunderland 2, Birmingham 1. Exciting for Sunderland this because... They are in with a shout, just like a number of teams around them. And I guess that's important to point out. One of the biggest issues for Sunderland, for West Brom, who we'll talk about next, for Watford even, it isn't the points gap between themselves and sixth spot. It's the amount of traffic around them, or in some cases between them. It's not a case of, we just need to chase down Blackburn and get above them. You need to get above three, four, five teams at this point, and that's difficult as well, because it means that they all have to uh, be playing at a, a, well, getting points at a significantly uh, smaller rate than you do. So difficult, but still exciting. This was Tony Mowbray's strikerless and youthful Sunderland, his, his black kittens, 
uh, I think, rather than Black Cats. They are, I mean, it was a tight game against a Birmingham side that played very well. The Sunderland fans on NTT 20 squad were, were very impressed with, with Birmingham and a lot of praise for John Eustace and the, and the setup, which made it difficult for Sunderland uh, to do what their players can do to teams who, who don't set up so well against them. But even so, when you have the quality of Ahmad Diallo, that can win you tight football matches. That was very much the case here. Their equaliser was notable as well, as it was a set-piece goal. And I, even as I saw it go in, I thought to myself, I can't remember seeing Sunderland score from a corner for a long time. There was that period where I was betting on Daniel Ballard every week on the betting show. And they, they didn't, I don't think they scored from one. Um, I, I can remember one against QPR, I think 09 scored. But anyway, very rare set-piece goal. I think only one team has scored fewer than them. So that was a nice touch. And um, yeah, just in, in good nick, um, all to play for still for Sunderland, which is impressive given that they were in League One last season. Uh, I don't probably need to remind you, but I think it's worth pointing out that uh, the, the 61 points that they've already collected uh, is the best return for a promoted side in the second tier since Millwall finished eighth with 72 in 2017-18, so about five seasons ago. The average haul in the first year up since Le- uh, from League One has been 49 points. So I remember pre-season being excited about what Sunderland could do with Alex Neal in particular at the helm, a manager I rate very highly. But because of the recent record of promoted teams from League One, I found it very difficult to project them even top half, because I just felt like it was so difficult to get uh, to, to sort of clear that hurdle. Um, but f- basically, from the start of the season, they've shown very clearly that they're able to do that, and they'll they'll certainly be finishing top half, and who knows uh, where else. Uh, George, how about Stoke one, West Brom two? Because one nil Stoke at halftime, I thought Baggies were done. Not done yet. Malumbi, the unlikely hero, and incredible to see his reaction to both goals. Um, you know, as you say. At 1-0 to Stoke with Jacob Brown opening the goal scoring and West Brom's really poor recent form dropping points uh, from winning positions against Rotherham and against um, QPR I mean that QPR result now it's just for Baggies fans must be so frustrating to have been 2-0 up at home to the worst team in the league on form and squander that lead and then still have 60 odd minutes to, to get a winner and fail to do so um, but yeah this feels big it feels big because the teams around them drop points um, you know, whether it's Blackburn, Norwich, Preston, you know, all the teams who are kind of sitting between them and the playoffs, not having a very good week. And then just to find a way to win. You know, their away form has been poor. Stoke have been one of the form teams in the league in recent weeks, um, even if it has dropped off a little bit in the, in the last couple. Um, Malumbi profiting from two real scrappy moments in the box, scoring, you know, a pretty unlikely goal scorer of a brace. But now with a trip to Blackpool on Tuesday night, um, a Blackpool side who, yes, they got a win against Wigan on the weekend, but are still looking pretty much destined for relegation. And with a game in hand on a lot of teams around them, out of nowhere, West Brom go from being a side who looked to be out of it to maybe. I mean, I know the odds don't reflect this, but in my mind, if if they if they win in midweek with presumably other teams around them dropping points, I think they they go not far off being the most likely. Like on on PPG again, they're they're basically there. Um. You know, are the performances themselves too troubling? Possibly. Just a, a quick one to say that the Ben Wilmot injury looked really, really horrible, really painful and quite concerning. He was carried off uh, with oxygen that the club have actually only, as we're recording five minutes ago, 
um, early afternoon on Monday, uh, been able to tweet an update saying that uh, Ben Wilmot has a fracture in his back and is still in hospital, uh, according to Alex Neal. It doesn't look like it will require surgery, is a quote that I'm reading from BBC Radio Stoke Sport, which I suppose is good news, uh, but overall not great news. So we wish Ben Wilmot well in in his recovery. I wouldn't have thought he'll be playing uh, for the rest of the season. The same for Daryl DK, who picked up an injury in this game, suspected Achilles injury, which are three words you do not want to read. And Watford, another team we've been pretty critical of in the last few weeks, they picked up a win at home to Bristol City. Now, I think it would be disingenuous to say that Watford are suddenly back in business, but... There was some quite nice attacking play here. I watched the extended highlights and the quality players that Watford had were playing some decent quality attacking football for the first time in a couple of weeks. And that was good to see. Now, let's be honest, the two goals owed a lot to luck. Um, the own goal in particular that put them ahead, but even the second goal as well. Uh, even so, I was I was encouraged by what I saw, albeit they've got a lot of ground to make up. And uh, as I mentioned before, five teams between them and sixth. Uh, so plenty still to do. But João Pedro came to play, pulled off a, a couple of absolutely incredible moments. And maybe we could see a few more from him uh, in the next four games. I wouldn't have thought we'd ever watch João Pedro play in the championship again. So that's the state of play. Millwall's win, meaning that they're on 65. Blackburn, who are sixth, are on 63. But they've got a game in hand. Then... It's a gap of one down to Coventry and Preston, both on 62. Coventry's goal difference plus nine, Preston's minus six. So 13 goals, 15 goals between those two teams. Uh, feels like an, an extra point only in the context of those two. Sunderland, uh, they're on 61, as are Norwich City, plus nine and plus eight. So they are neck and neck almost. Uh, and West Brom on 60 points, Watford 59. So there are eight teams being separated by six points. And that's pretty cool with four games to go at the bottom what was the most significant result well as i said george blackpool the only team in the bottom 10 to win so realistically the only team that came out of the weekend feeling really good about themselves uh, beating wigan 1-0 yeah classic relegation fair this with one team um going ahead very early through a really nice jerry yates finish and then just defending for their lives really they didn't offer too much going forward after that they didn't really have to up against the wigan side who even though in my mind they've improved a bit under sean maloney um don't offer a great deal going forward. And again, they after they puffed, they didn't really have the quality in the final third to to, to create too much. And Blackpool saw out the win. Um, you have to feel, I mean, I think it's fairly likely that Wigan's relegation is going to be confirmed, um, well, over the course of the next five days, possibly in midweek. For Blackpool, it, it obviously gives them hope. And considering how many sides at the bottom end of the championship, you know, you're looking at, Reading, looking at Cardiff, looking at QPR, aren't picking up points at a particular rate. You know, Blackpool have four games left to play. There's 12 points on the board. They could get up to 50 if they win all four. They probably won't do that. But when you've got QPR, a sitting duck on 43, Reading and Cardiff both on 42, you know, it all it takes is another win to really, you know, all they can ask for is basically to go into final day still in the mix for um, to try and get out of it when they try to, when they travel to um, to Norwich. And the fixtures aren't particularly kind to them. I mentioned there that you know you probably anticipate West Brom will fancy their chances of beating Blackpool on Tuesday night, um, and then a couple of playoff contenders to finish with Millwall and Norwich. But um, you know, all they can ask for, all the caretaker manager can do is provide some hope they can get out of it and a, a win against Wigan when a defeat would have basically cast them adrift um, is a, a good start to that and a good, I guess, audition for him to try and land the job long term. 
Yeah, lastly in the championship, Swansea won Huddersfield nil. It means that for Swansea, it's four wins in five. It's four clean sheets in five, which sounds weird. Is is arguably more important for me, is is more significant for me, is, is a Swansea team looking a little more comfortable and a little more solid at the back. Um, such a young defence for the most part. And, you know, you, you have to hope for their sake that uh, the experience of this season and last season as well, in which they, you know, they, they were a team that, could be described as pretty soft a lot of the time it'd be amazing if they could work through that and improve ahead of next season it feels a lot like last year where Swans finished very strong and all summer people were talking themselves into a you know a a promotion challenge and we felt like we kind of wanted to see the evidence before we went for it and I remember our placing of Swansea in the 1-24s had some fans a little bit disappointed in fact I remember a direct quote from a Swans fan who tweeted us saying "Uh, I think I'll be very disappointed with a 13th place finish lads uh, well, they're currently 13th, so <laughs> see see where they end up. Uh, that was against Huddersfield, who from 2-0 up after 15 minutes against Blackburn on Easter Monday to drawing that game 2-2 and then losing at Swansea. So they've still got some work to do. Well, George, how much work do Plymouth Argyle have still to do in League One? Because they went to Devon, rivals Exeter. They won 1-0, a second half goal. Second half FC doing it again. That combined with Ipswich's 6-0 win against Charlton and Sheffield Wednesday's 3-2 defeat at Burton along with Barnsley's 5-1 win uh, at Forest Green. That's what happened over the weekend at the top of League One. Where to start, my friend? Let's start in Devon because that is an unbelievable result for, for Argyle. And I've said it so many times, their resilience just astounds me how they are constantly able to bounce back from defeats and follow it up with a victory you know if we go you know since um the beginning of february they've lost five games um in all competitions and i mentioned all competitions because normally i would ignore the the um papa john's final 4-0 defeat but i think the significance of that given the occasion and the way they were beaten means it's really important not to do so they've lost five games as i say since the beginning of february one was at hillsborough they lost 1-0 they bounced back and beat portsmouth 3-1 next time out they went to peterborough and lost 5-2 bounced back and beat charlton 2-0 next time out lost 3-0 at barnsley bounced back beat forest green 2-0 then they lose 4-0 in the papa john's trophy final at wembley come back five days later come back from behind and beat morecambe 3-1 lose to Lincoln 2-0, bounce back and be X to 1-0 in a massive derby game. Like it is, given where they are in the table, and that is that is top, given how much they are punching above their weight in terms of, of their, um, you know, of the clubs around them. You know, they are, a, a you know, you don't want to be disrespectful, but in boxing terms, they're, a, you know, a, a, a featherweight taking on two heavyweights if you want you know that's no disrespect for them that's just purely in terms of the amount of revenue that they are able to um, put into the club and let's remember that Plymouth Argyle do it in a sustainable way so they do not spend above their means in order to to maintain their push unlike some teams around them who are you know we know how many players Ipswich have brought in over the last couple of seasons in a bid to get back to the championship for example um, and yet they are always able to come back and turn these around now my concern is that Yes, the resilience is obviously incredibly impressive, but that is still five games that they have lost in all competitions in just over two months. They have five games left to play. Three of them are at home. All of them are against sides currently in the bottom half, apart from um, Shrewsbury next up, who, you know, even even though they're tenth, you know, 
in the form table, they are certainly a bottom half team or possibly even a, a bottom, you know, relegation form in terms of, of what they're doing at the moment in, with the points that they're picking up. Um, so the fixture list is obviously incredibly generous to them. Also, the other thing to think about with Argyle is that, yes, Ipswich are um, rampant currently, but at the same time, the title doesn't really matter. It's all about finishing in the top two right now and therefore Sheffield Wednesday dropping points which means that not only are Argyle above them um, in terms of having a two-point cushion, but they've also got that game in hand. It does feel now, to me, like they've got breathing room to an extent that they can probably afford to drop more points between now and the end of the season and still finish in the top two. And that's the first time this season I think we've been able to say that. Yeah, you talked about incredible resilience. Uh, I think something that, that goes hand in hand with that when it comes to, to praising what they've been able to do. And, and this, the latest uh, example of it, is uh, Schumacher's in-game changes and in-game management, which have, have been, you know, how do you separate that from mental resilience? It's very, very difficult to do. And I suppose it's easier just to say that they've had both in, in spades. And, you know, that was the case here because it wasn't an easy game for them. It wasn't an easy first half for them, that's for sure. But uh, they worked a, a good opportunity. They were sharp from that set-piece situation, uh, managed to get Butcher, who had gone over to take it into a position to uh, deliver from the angle of the box with his left foot, which is dangerous, and um, coaxing the defender into an own goal. They didn't have Barley Mumba for this one as well. So in terms of their attacking threat, you know, they were always going to be a little bit uh, reduced. Of course, there is another side to that, which is that Saxon Early, who came in for him, really impressive, um, quite physical young player with great stamina and dare I say it, maybe, say it maybe a little sturdier defensively as well, which you know could have been the right thing for this game and in hindsight absolutely looks like it was. So in an incredible position, I, I can't agree with, I can't disagree with anything that you've said. They need, regardless of what Sheffield Wednesday do, they need 11 points from five games to secure promotion. That's with Sheffield Wednesday winning every one of their games. And I think they'll do that because of the fixtures that they have uh, and because of what we've seen from this team. Uh, I, I, you know, basically running out of reasons to uh, to doubt them. Um, and I think that says a lot. Of course, part of that, George, is down to Sheffield Wednesday. I want to ask you about them in just a moment. But let's talk about Ipswich 6, Charlton nil. I, I sort of feel bad because the, the tone of my voice is kind of like, oh, here we go again. I feel like we've had this discussion a lot. It's true. Uh, Ipswich have scored 29 goals and conceded one in their last 10 games. They've won nine of them. Uh, this one, the, the heaviest of the lot. Connor Chaplin with an extremely well-taken hat-trick. The, the team's ability to create chances for Chaplin which just happen to be the sort of chances that Connor Chaplin is very good at taking is astounding uh, normally from wide areas and cut back to him picking up positions that are really difficult for centre-backs to pick up and you know if he can give a, a defensive midfielder the slip then he's, he's always got a little pocket of space, in, space inside the box he doesn't seem to need much space in order to get uh, accurate shots off with, with either foot um, and they just kept going I, I think Charlton they're not a team suited to sitting in, defending deep. I don't think a huge amount of their defensive shape and structure overall. Uh, and this is a team in Ipswich where if you are open, if you try and you know step up, if you try and take the game to them uh, when they've got the ball, they're probably going to play through you and they're going to love playing against you because that's how good they are right now. If you want to just bunker in and defend for your lives, well... Again, you're kind of playing into their hands because then the only question is, will they take a chance or not? Because you're probably not going to have very many. So confidence is so high. They are probably playing at the highest level of any League One team I've ever seen. Um, and uh, although they've got some tough fixtures, it's difficult to see them falling off a cliff. 
It is, and, and this is this is definitely meant to be a praise rather than a criticism because it wouldn't surprise me at all if we see Ipswich win every game in from here to the end of the season, despite having really difficult trips to to Barnsley and Peterborough in amongst that. But there is a very clear, you know, difference in performance level at home and away. So I agree with you that I think Ipswich at Portman Road are probably the best League One side we've ever seen, at least since we've been doing the pod, I would argue. And that's reflected. If you look at their last 10 home games, they've drawn two of them. Those two came against Plymouth Argyle and Sheffield Wednesday, so the team currently in first and in third. If you take those two games out, their results are 3-0, Like, that level of superiority against your opposition is unheard of at any level like even at the top end of the Premier League where the, the gap between the likes of Manchester City you know in recent years Liverpool this year Arsenal and the bottom teams is so big you, you don't see that 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 consistent winning margin of three or four goals every single time you take you take to the pitch away from home though things are different and even though they've won three of their last four away from home the margin of victory is smaller. So those three home wins came against MK Dons, Bolton and Derby. They won those games 1-0, 2-0 and 2-0. But if you take out those three wins, they haven't won any other of their last seven, of their last of their last 10. So the seven other of their last 10 away games, none. Those are the only three they've won. They've drawn one all at Cheltenham. They've drawn one 0-0 at Bristol Rovers, drawn at Pompey, drawn at Lincoln, drawn at Cambridge, were beaten by Oxford and Wickham. So... Yeah, I agree with you. Like they are operating at a high level. They are definitely the team that I I think are the most likely to win League One, as I've been saying for the last few weeks. But in that context, suddenly the th- the fact they've got three away games in their last five, the fact that two of those away games come at teams, you know, I think Barnsley's home form this season and their recent home wins has been, you know, almost similarly dominant in terms of what we've seen from them and the goals that they're scoring. You know, I think they've averaged over three goals a game at home over the last eight games, Barnsley. Um, makes things more difficult, and you know, for those of for those who think that it's a foregone conclusion that the Ipswich side are going to just steamroll everyone in front of them, or bulldoze. I loved you calling them the um, the bulldozer boys rather than the tractor boys on the EFL um, newsletter, the NTT Twenty newsletter on Substack, which you should subscribe to. Still not quite got it, but we'll get there. NTT Twenty the EFL newsletter by NTT Twenty. The EFL newsletter by Ali Maxwell's NTT Twenty. Um, <laughs> it's uh, yeah. I wonder, and this might be you know. For our, I'm certainly not writing it, it switch off for, for any Argyle fans, you know, and Sheffield Wednesday fans as well. I do think that those away games for, for town, given what we've seen go past recently on the road, you know, it gives it gives those teams around them. A chance, I think, to make ground up because it, they're not foregone conclusions. Burton beat Sheffield Wednesday three two. Now, uh, Burton with three one up after thirty seven minutes. Sheffield Wednesday still with a lot of time to get back level. They did not do that. Uh, did pull one back through a penalty with uh, fifteen minutes or so to go, but didn't do enough. Uh, Peter on the squad saying it felt like a collapse and an implosion today. Not because of the result, but because of the response to going behind. We were nowhere near the sharpness. Uh, in response, as at Cheltenham, just an old bag of nothings, I liked. Uh, we also had a, another tweet from a Sheffield Wednesday fan, George, imploring us or giving us the green light 
to call Sheffield Wednesday bottle jobs. That's what he wants us to say after one win in eight uh, has given them uh, a bit of a mounted decline in terms of automatic promotion from a position of great strength. I will not be using that phrase. Will you? No, I won't. Um, their bad run has come at a time later on in the in the um, league campaign. It's very rare that a team will maintain a level of points per game that Sheffield Wednesday were keeping up before the one-all draw at home to Bolton that seemed to signify the start of this run. Um, we've seen Argyle have poor runs at times this season, although, as I say, normally when they lose, they bounce back. But in terms of the amount of games they've lost, we've certainly seen Ipswich have poor runs. You know, People were saying that Ipswich had bottled it a couple of weeks ago and then they've scored 30 goals to one. It's football and it's random sometimes. Like, Is, is it always... Is definitively is the reason why Sheffield Wednesday are not picking up points at the rate that they were because they are collapsing mentally in the pressure of getting promoted. I'm not convinced that that is the case. I think there are elements where maybe they've been sussed a little bit. I think the I think the the four two defeat of Barnsley clearly massively not their confidence. I think the injury to Josh Windass has had a very tangible effect on their attacking Bias output as well. Exactly, Byers' absence too. Um, there are other reasons for this. Now, that's not to say that Wednesday fans shouldn't feel incredibly aggrieved at what's happened. Um, but there's still, well, four games to go for Wednesday. Um, as I say, the teams, even though Argyle have got um, favourable fixtures, we saw them get beaten 2-0 at home to Lincoln just the other day. As I mentioned, Ipswich still have a couple of really difficult away trips still to come and their away form isn't great. You know, if Wednesday... I, I probably reckon that if Wednesday pick up four wins from four to finish the season, that probably sees them get promoted automatically. For Burton, Sam Hughes had a very good game uh, at the back and also in Sheffield Wednesday's box where he, he causes some chaos from set-piece situations. And Mark Helm scored a brace for Burton. He was uh, one of their winter signings. He's a former Manchester United youngster uh, and very much uh, at the double here. Burton have been a, a top-half team under Dino Mamria since he was appointed um, and they'll be in the division next year. And it'll be interesting to see uh, whether he can kind of keep the good times rolling next season after a, a summer. I sort of hope their summer of recruitment is a little bit calmer than the last few windows because Burton have had some serious churn over the last few years. But maybe that's just a part of the club now. Uh, Forest Green 1, Barnsley 5. Uh, George, Barnsley sort of repeatedly punching Forest Green in the face here. Um, uh, pretty similar to most of Forest Green's recent games and to a lot of Barnsley's as well. Uh, they get ahead and they don't just sit back and protect it. They they go after teams and they're very, very good at doing so. Um, they're really good at playing quality, um, fairly direct passes forward and, and kind of catching the opposition uh, unawares with the, with the quality of the front two and particularly uh, down the sides as well. Uh, a very, very straightforward win. Adam Phillips at the double. Norwood scoring a goal against a club that he has a bit of history with. Um, so a great day for Barnsley. But let's reflect on Forest Green's relegation, uh, which was confirmed here. Uh, no great surprise. I think more or less from December onwards, it's been fairly clear in my eyes that they were unlikely to, to be able to muster what need, what they needed to stay up. It's uh, It's a shame... George, I would suggest, because they were a great team last season. Rob Edwards at the helm. Kane Wilson down the right wing. Nicky Cadden down the left wing. Ebu Adams in midfield. Stevens and Jamil Matt doing the business up front, not to mention a, a strong back three. Um, take the three best players and the manager out of any promoted team. They're likely to struggle, uh, particularly one that maybe hadn't had a go at this level before and has found it very, very difficult. 
for sure um i think there's a lesson to a lot of owners of football clubs about how important succession planning is and how important protecting your assets are probably more so than success because um you know last season as you say forest green incredibly impressive in terms of what they did but to win a league in may and then to sit down in june and have the protagonists of that title win basically ripped out of the club and basically get very little in terms of financial compensation for that you just can't operate you know if Kane Wilson and you know what's happened to Kane Wilson this season is pretty sad to be honest um but if Kane Wilson and Ebu Adams I mean you can say the same about Ebu to be fair but if, if they are championship quality players and you're a league two side you need to be getting paid for the development of that talent in order to reinvest and not be dealt a huge blow when they leave the club and Forest Green were unable to do that there's also been a total shambles behind the scenes in terms of um, off-field issues you know we saw the way that Delvin spoke about Rob Edwards when he left there was you know Rich Hughes who seemingly had one foot out the door ducked back in again and then ended up going off to, to Pompey the appointment of Stevie Grieve who was seemingly given a blank checkbook to go out and get as many players as he wanted and, and recruit a new manager Stevie Grieve is no longer the manager is still there and Duncan Ferguson who as a kind of appointment on the face of it looked incredibly impressive given that he was a lot of Everton fans' choice to be their manager for the last seven sackings at Goodison Park but now I cannot work out Duncan Ferguson and Forrest Green at all they seem to chop and change style of play week by week um, they can put in a performance like the one they put in against Sheffield Wednesday which was so impressive and still look just basically toothless in, in all other games you know, they dominated possession here against Barnsley, having had other games at home recently where they barely touched the ball. Like, I, you know, I, I guess he's getting to know um, the, the players that he's got and what, what he wants to do next season. But yeah, it it feels like the the stadium's the same, the owner's the same, the kit looks the same. But as football clubs go, it's hard to think of many that have had a bigger churn. You know, we've seen two director of footballs go. We've seen three managers take charge of Forest Green including Rob Edwards since this time last year and everything is you know the, the, the players the best players that were there have left for, for basically nothing like it's you know for, Dale Vince deserves a lot of credit for the you know for the success that Forest Green have had over the past decade or so but it does feel like the ball was dropped somewhere here to, to not um, you know safe proof the, the Forest Green's assets I think the other thing to point out is just like tactically and as a football team, they have always wanted to play the right way. They've been very, very clear about that. And by the right way, what they mean by that is a, is a technical style. Uh, Richie spoke about it. They, they didn't care that they had gone up a level and they were going to be punching above their weight in terms of budgets. They still wanted to be a team that had possession of the ball and wanted to have as much possession of the ball as possible. Um, I think there's probably an extent to which that has to be balanced with the physical side and the defensive side. Um, and I guess the phrase, you have to earn the right to play, is what springs to mind. I'm not sure Forest Green have done that at all this season. Um, I remember watching periods of their first few games where I thought they looked quite tidy, um, but never consistently getting the ball into dangerous areas with loads of attackers forward. Uh, and then equally defensively, very few games where it felt like they were solid, sturdy enough to ride out difficult periods. Um, it's really let them down. So, yeah, Vince's open support of managers, I think, has been a strength 
generally of the club in the last few years. But I am a bit concerned that he seems completely enthralled to Duncan Ferguson. Just look at the way that he that he looks at him in those uh, interviews when he appoints him as if he just couldn't believe that they'd hired this celebrity and that Sky Sports News was so excited to send their cameras down there. Like, the results have been really poor. I understand that he doesn't want to blame Duncan Ferguson for that and I broadly agree with that. But, you know, the fact they've hired a head of scouting to replace the head of recruitment who replaced the director of football suggests to me that, you know, the terminology used there suggests to me that Duncan Ferguson's like, I'm I'm going to do this recruitment myself and that would certainly concern me. So yeah, I'm not bullish at all on them next season. The four teams that went down from League One last season are all in the bottom half of League Two. So uh, it's not like there's a sort of automatic right or automatic quality that comes from getting relegated from League One to League Two and challenging at the top end. Uh, I'm a bit worried about them, but there's a, a long time between now and August. Uh, there were three big results that impacted the playoffs and the relegation battle. All three of them, George. Oxford nil, Bolton won. Cambridge 2, Peterborough 1, and Morecambe 1, Wickham 0. You were at one of these games. I'll let the listener guess which. Yeah, Bolton 1, Oxford 0. Mm. Um, weird game, I would say. Um, Oxford were absolutely terrible for the first 25 minutes. Um, there was a weird moment where Oxford kind of messed up a short corner routine, which somehow ended with... Um, Stuart Finley having a free header when he, which he put kind of 10 yards wide and there was also this moment where we were like whoa hold on we just did something terrible and still created a goal scoring opportunity maybe we can actually get something out of this and then things kind of changed in the second half where Bolton you know you could tell that Bolton were a side who hadn't won that many league games recently because having gone ahead and were by miles the better side for the first 20, 20 minutes or so of the game then kind of retreated into a low block Oxford had a lot of possession were quite clearly the side who, who looked more likely to score. Having said that, you know, um, Bolton had three shots in the first 20 minutes, then he had one other shot in the rest of the game, which was in itself not a bad opportunity that they nearly scored from in the break in the second half, as you nearly called in your um, big match preview preview um, on the newsletter. But it was, um, it was in the end of the day, it was a lot of long shots, pot shots from Oxford. Um, you know, there was one moment in the game that I think Oxford fans will feel aggrieved by, which was uh, James Mate, Even I felt aggrieved by this one. I genuinely, and you know I don't generally get too yeah. uh, out of my seat with refereeing decisions, but I find it difficult to understand why James Trafford wasn't sent off for sort of flying headbutt, which makes it sound worse than it was. He was trying to head the ball, a bouncing ball over the top. Uh, Carl Joseph got there first and, and Trafford sort of flew into him like horizontally. I think there's scope for it to be a red card for denial of a goal-scoring opportunity. It's outside the box, so the double jeopardy wouldn't come into play. It's a red card if you foul someone, no matter in which way you foul them, uh, when there's a clear goal-scoring opportunity, which I believe there was. He could probably have been sent off for serious foul play just because of the 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 speed with which he flew into Carl Joseph without getting anywhere near the ball. So I'm pretty upset on your behalf about that one, but it sounds like you're slightly less fussed. Well, I was very upset at the time where it happened. Um, But um, yeah, off the back of that, yeah, I mean, it it probably was a red card. All I'm saying is I can see with the covering defender there and the ball maybe going away from goal, um, I can maybe see why it wasn't given, even though the replay certainly suggests it probably should have been. Um, and at the time, I can guarantee you that I definitely was thinking it was a red. Ref! Ref! Um, yeah, another frustrating game for Oxford, who I think are one of those classic teams at the moment who who look okay when they're behind. 
Um, yeah, with 15 games that are win now is, is pretty desperate stuff. And um, with Accrington and Charlton picking up points pretty regularly, things couldn't really be going worse. Accrington and Cambridge, I think is who you meant. Cambridge certainly picking up points fairly regularly. They are within just... 15 goals of Oxford <laughs> because you're now level on points on 40. Um, you, you have a minus 11 goal difference. Cambridge have a minus 26 goal difference. Cambridge certainly have both the form line and dare I say it, probably the performance levels uh, in their favour at the moment. Win, win, draw, win. That's 10 points from their last four games. They beat their main rivals, Peterborough United, early on Saturday. Uh, it was a fantastic atmosphere at the Abbey uh, and they did the business. Um Two nil winners. Sam Smith with his fourth in four games. Uh, it's quite funny, this, isn't it, George? The amount of times I picked him on the betting show this season and said he has loads of shots and does loads of XGs, but doesn't do any actual Gs. Um, we knew that some goals were coming. I did, probably didn't expect it to take about four months, uh, but here you go. Four in four for a very lively attacking player who's finally found his shooting boots, uh, although this one was a header. Uh, and Mark Bonner afterwards, I just loved his words. I think he's I think he's found his pitch again. I think he's found the right tone. I think he's he's managed to drag back a lot of the fans that would have been uh, very much Bonner out uh, a couple of months ago. I see nothing to suggest that he hasn't still got the, the players completely on side. Uh, I, I'm feeling confident that Cambridge's level of performances are strong enough and sustainable enough to, to carry them over the next few games, to hit similar levels over the next few games, that this isn't just a bit of a fluke. So... Will they stay up? I'm feeling fairly good about it, but it also depends on what Oxford do and what MK Dons do. Dare I say it, what Port Vale do as well. More on them in a second, but uh, I imagine you're feeling a little nervy about Cambridge at the moment. And then Morecambe beat Wickham 1-0. Um, tough for, for Wickham this, just not doing enough to, to hunt down the playoffs. I think that's becoming clearer and clearer. The winning goal was magnificent, wasn't it, from Cole Stockton? An airborne Cole Stockton. Unreal. I feel like this hasn't got enough love. Yeah, an incredible finish and from a man who we know is capable of the incredible and a massive, you know, this is another one, again, as an Oxford fan where you see that go in, you're thinking, how are all these teams winning games? You know, it's still going to be an incredibly tall order for um, Morecambe to get themselves out of the relegation zone, especially, as I say, you know, Cambridge's form, um, not doing them too many favours, but they can only give it their best shot. And for Stockton, a player who's been side of form this season, to score a goal like that is... You know, it, it gives them a chance. The issue for Morecambe is that they played a game more than everybody else in the whole league. Two more than the two teams above them as well, which is a bit and of a the blow. T- and, and the team below them. So you think it's going to be too little too late. You know, there's nine points left on the table. They could get to 45 if they win all of them. And I'm not even sure that would necessarily be enough to keep them up. Um, so we'll see. But uh, a nice moment for Stockton and for... for um, Morecambe and I'm intrigued you know I'm kind of excited there's obviously a lot of off-field issues at the moment there um, which is not very good or not great to see but um, I hope that those can be resolved and we can see um, Derek Adams lead Morecambe in in League 2 next season if they are to get relegated and they can kind of keep the the band together because um, you know they're a club that I think have been a welcome addition to League 1 and have done you know I'm I'm writing them off too early am I but um, yeah I hope that we see Stockton and Morecambe together in scoring goals for years to come, regardless of what league they're in. A damaging late concession for Wickham, that one. You could say the same about Derby, who conceded a late penalty uh, to draw against Bristol Rovers. Now, it was a fairly contentious penalty here. I'm 
very much sitting on the fence. I can see why it was given. I think it looks kind of messy the way that the defender falls and then in doing so trips the Bristol Rovers player. I've seen a few different angles and after 10 uh, replays, I don't know. I can see why it was given and I probably wouldn't have been too upset if it hadn't been given. Um, so there you go. You get those quite a lot. It's not great news for Derby. Paul Warm wasn't happy. Uh, it means they haven't beaten any of the top 16 teams away from home. That lack of uh, away performance level, away results is, is what's really held them back. They have only won uh, well, one of their last six games, which is not going to be doing it for them. Uh, the playoff picture looks as follows. Bolton did themselves a favour. They were going into the weekend feeling a bit nervy, but uh, they're now fifth on 71. Peterborough uh, sixth on 70. Bolton with a game in hand over the teams around them. Derby uh, one back on 69 and then Wickham four back on 65. So it looks like Derby and Peterborough and Bolton, one of them will miss out. Who will it be? We don't know. Uh, as for the relegation picture, Forest Green down on 26. Accrington and Morecambe are both on 38, but Morecambe have played 43, Accrington 41. Cambridge are on 42 above those two. Level on points with Oxford just above the drop zone, also on 40. Uh, MK Dons, three clear of Oxford at the moment. Uh, both Oxford and Cambridge have got games in hand over MK and Port Vale, who are six points above the dotted line on 46. But they are very much on our lips, George Port Vale, because... Having lost 3-2 at Lincoln on Saturday in a bonkers game, which involved five goals, three red cards and a whole lot of carnage. It meant that Vale have picked up four red cards in their last three games. They've only won two of their last 18 in the league. As discussed, Having they're now six points above the drop zone in 18th, having been as high as ninth around Christmas time. And they've sacked Daryl Clark. They've sacked Daryl Clark, having given him a five-year contract not that long ago, with him having had legendary status due to last season's promotion. A club, George, that I honestly felt everything was going really well at Port Vale, on the pitch and off the pitch. All of a sudden, all I'm seeing is pure panic. What has happened here? What do you make of it? I mean, it's hard to know what to make of it. You know, the first reaction as a neutral onlooker is that it's very harsh to see Daryl Clark showing the door for, for kind of a multitude of reasons. You know, I think there has to be some credit in the bank for um, for last season. It felt like because of, you know, and, and I'm in no way saying that what happened in his personal life should affect the decisions being made around the, the you know, the future of the football club. But given what Daryl did go through last season ahead of the playoff campaign... You know, it felt like there was a, a real, something quite special. You know, you and I were there at Wembley that day and it felt like a, a really special day for Port Vale. You know, a return to League One, really galvanised, very, very united and very together in terms of what they did. And of course, Daryl's very emotional interview uh, on Sky after the game where, you know, he, he laid bare what had been going on. Um, and then you and I sat down for our 1-24s. We had Port Vale in the relegation zone because at the time they basically didn't have any players. And, you know, at the time it felt like staying up would have been a pretty good result. And they completely blew us away. You know, they signed a lot of fairly decent players after that as the season started. The form up to the the new year was really impressive. And it felt like they were blowing away all expectations, even to the extent where there was some conversation as, as to whether they could be dark horses to break into the playoffs. Now, clearly the last couple of months 
have been have been really poor. And I watched their game against Oxford the other day, and it was it was two really poor sides kind of slugging it out against each other. Um, but to sack him, to sack a manager who, you know, and we also know a Daryl Clark that there are massive highs and massive lows, and there always have been in his managerial reigns. We saw Bristol Rovers go on long losing spells and then turn around with, with really good opportunities and really good spells. Um, is is a bit of a shock, and I guess it just comes down to again. Is it a bit of panic? Is it a case of, well, what can we do to try and make sure that we pick up? I mean, they may not even need many points. I mean, they may... Mate, six points is still a big old gap. Yeah. You know, they, they, they might lose every game and stay up. Like, it's... Um, but having said that, it's the decision, you know, you it's a classic case where you and I don't know what goes on behind the scenes. We don't know what the relationship is like between Clark and Flickcroft. We don't know what the relationship is like with, with Clark and Andy Crosby, the caretaker manager, his assistant... All we can do is is look and see what, what how it looks from our point of view. Um, I know Port Vale fans seem to think that things had, had got to a, a stage where um, it was maybe un, unsalvageable. And if that's the case, then... Well, most of the noises on that front are that David Flickcroft, the director of football, has kind of... Uh, he's come out well here, given that the fans consider the last few transfer windows to have been very poor, that... Uh, Daryl Clark, certainly until the last couple of months, was getting a lot out of the squad uh, in taking them into League One, in having such a strong start to the season. Uh, even the previously beloved owner, Carol Shanahan, uh, is now you know picking up her first bit of flack for lack of investment in January and for, for this decision. I don't think the fans are very, very happy uh, about this, which I think is actually quite a powerful sentiment given their poor form. If you win two wins in 18, most fans would be more than happy to see the back of the manager. Vale fans not happy about the manager makes me concerned about what things might be like behind the scenes. I mean, he is a very, very strong character. So, of course, there are going to be people uh, assuming that there's been a falling out behind the scenes. Uh, there have also been plenty of suggestions that uh, the Portsmouth job was something that would have interested him and uh, and his high um, compensation fee because of that five-year contract was maybe off-putting for a club like Pompey. And maybe since then, uh, that was around January time, maybe the atmosphere has changed a little bit. You know, has he lost the dressing room? We don't know, but things like four red cards in the last three games, some of them completely mindless. They're like they don't always reflect a team that seems particularly uh, on it and in sort of high performance mode. You know, all of this is complete conjecture, as you say. We we don't know. I'm just trying to make some sense of a decision that, you know, if none of that's true, I would find very surprising and, and potentially pretty damaging if it is literally just them panicking about relegation. Um, I don't think they'll go down. I don't think they would have gone down with him in charge. So ahead of next season, if I'm right, they need to hire a great manager um, because there's no guarantees that Port Vale will be or should be strong in League One. Um, I think they had a great manager for the level. Um, so I, I'm a little bit concerned about them. Uh, elsewhere in League One, really entertaining fair at Accrington, probably not for the Aki fans. They lost 5-2 to Fleetwood. Uh, it involved one of my favourite red cards of the season. I, I'm a bit loath to say that because it was a fairly dangerous looking tackle, but it was just the fact that it followed a, an absolutely bonkers goalmouth scramble where no one really knew what was going on. No one really knew where the ball was. Everyone was just hacking at each other. And then it got sort of half cleared to the edge of the box and in came Coyle. Um, he, he was going to clear something out whether he got to the ball or not and ended up getting sent off, which wasn't very smart. Uh, Jack Marriott scored a nice hat-trick. Uh, some of the defending overall was magnificently bad. Um, and Fleetwood picked up a 5-2 win. MK2, Cheltenham 2. I'd say Jamie Cumming was the protagonist here in that the MK goalkeeper 
gifted Cheltenham an opening goal with a, a loose pass that allowed a Cheltenham to go one up. He then made a great penalty save at 2-1 after Moise had scored a brace. Incredible stop, actually, to keep out Alfie May. Uh, then made another incredible save from a Caleb Taylor header in injury time, only to push it straight to Alfie May to equalise deep, 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 deep into stoppage time. An MK win would have made them feel very comfy. The fact that they didn't, means that they will still feel a little bit nervy. And Shrewsbury won, Portsmouth won, uh, was the battle of ninth versus 10th, and it was, yeah, pretty drawy, all told. Pretty drawy, that one. Uh, at the top of League Two, George, I'm going to ask you a question that we got tweeted. Still unconvinced about Leighton Orient? 2-0 winners at Sutton. They're so far clear that two major outlets reported that their promotion had been confirmed at 5pm, which apparently sent the club itself and all the executives into absolute meltdown as they worked out, they tried to work out if they had been promoted without realising it. The answer is no, mathematically not promoted yet. Do you know what? Who like who cares if I'm convinced by them? Who cares? Doesn't matter. Some Orient fans, I think. They're gonna win they're gonna win League Two by miles and you know, fair play to them. Two more incredible goals to add to a you know, they could have their old their own goal of the season. They will. will. Most clubs do. Um, But they could have their own goal of the season competition that would look like a a league's goal of the season. Um, (laughs) You know, fair play to them. Like, it doesn't matter. Um, I, you know, if if they were to play Stockport tomorrow at Wembley and both sides were even money, who would I back? I think the answer would get me in trouble. But it's it's you know it's irrelevant. It's just how your brain works, mate. You don't apologise for it. It's how your brain works. Did I apologise for it? And it's a good brain. Did I did I apologise? It's a very special brain. Mate. You should apologise to me now. You should be very proud of it. I'll, I'll pick up there because DC on the NCT Twenty Squad did message yesterday and said, "Don't mean to be rude. Not trying to be a burden, but." Has anyone watched Leighton Orient this season and been blown away? He's a match-going uh, League Two fan, so he'd seen them a couple of times this season. He's like, he was a bit surprised that that's the team that's running away with it at the top of League Two. And my two penneth was <laughs> <laughs> what I would say I've been blown away by is their level of consistency in putting in a certain level of performance that has made them first and foremost incredibly difficult to beat incredibly difficult to score against unbelievably difficult to score two against and therefore they have almost always been in every game when there's just been a goal in it or more or or when they've kept a clean sheet in attack they've been good enough to win a ton of those tight games I don't think they have been an attacking team that anyone would feel they've been that's like absolutely blown them away because they're not a team that takes loads and loads of shots. They're not a team that creates loads and loads of chances. Uh, What they have got is a lot of good individual attacking players and they have had good bursts of form at really important times to kind of um, take on a load of attacking responsibility and basically get their team goals. So Paul Smith was the one for the first few months of the season. He got injured. Theo Archibald picked up the slack really, really well. There've been others as well at, at different times. Moncur and, and El Miz in particular, they've got goals from set pieces. They do play a decent style. Like they're very comfortable in possession. I went to that Stevenage game and I enjoyed their patterns of play. They seemed properly well coached and well drilled. The outcome of what they were trying to do was to get the ball out wide 
to their wingers, who are their best players, in 1v1 positions. Now, it often meant that they got the ball out to Smith and Archibald 25, 30 yards out from goal and right out on the wing. So it does, it's not necessarily a style of play that feels unbelievably exciting or like incredibly penetrative, but it's absolutely worked for them. You know, how much will that translate to League One? We will find out. They might need to find another way and a lot of that will come down to their, their recruitment in the summer. But I think it's fair to ask the question, but I think there are lots of reasons to be blown away by them. They're just not particularly sexy reasons. Um, I also think there's something in the fact that I don't think this is a league where teams are teams that blow people away. Like some of the last winners of this league, I can't think of many teams that have been teams that regularly blow. It's just a much more competitive league across the board. And, and I think you've tapped in something that is, I hadn't really thought about until you said it, where you're so right, where, you know, the reason why I, I made that comment about Stockport and they're ignoring it is because in my mind, when Stockport are at their best, there's basically no one in League Two who can handle them. But they've also had loads of games where they haven't been at their best and they've actually been really poor. And with Leighton Orient, it feels like that those games have been few and far between. You know, they, they don't concede many chances. It's only really the 3-0 defeat at Stevenage where I, I can think back and think, yeah, they were way off it that day. And consistency is the most important thing because, you know, when you've got teams like Stevenage, like Stockport, like Carlisle, like Salford, you know, these, these teams who on their day can look irresistible and just create a ton of really, you know, big chances, high, you know, high extra opportunities. But you can't do that on a, on a regular basis. And it is the teams like Leighton Orient, who are probably going to be the better team, even if it's marginal in most of the games they play in League Two, because they're a really good side. And, and that can be the blueprint to get you the most points over the, over the course of the season. So, yeah, I mean, I, I will maintain that a Leighton Orient, is Leighton Orient ceiling the highest in League Two? No. But the reason why they've got so many points is because as you say it's a low margin game they've got quality players they have scored an amazing amount of great goals which data wise projects pretty um difficultly but in terms of achievement it's it's, it's incredibly important so <laughs> what did you laugh at me for saying earlier that didn't make that when i just made up a word you just said <laughs> difficult just said difficultly it's one of the most awkward sounding words i think i've ever heard difficultly how did he do it? I did it, I did it difficultly. <laughs> anyway, um, mm, they are not we up say yet. too many words. I'm sure they will be. On Tuesday night, their promotion will surely be confirmed. It is um, a word, though. Mm, Carlisle nil, Northampton nil was, unsurprisingly, very, very tight. Uh, one big chance for both sides, and the goalkeepers came out on top. Uh, Holy and Burge both making significant saves. So points shared, I tend to lean towards those games being more important not to lose than necessarily to go all out for the win. So I think, you know, uh, nothing lost really for Carlisle and Northampton, partly because, well, Stockport drew as well at Gillingham. Uh, had to wait for a late Will Collar goal to get a point there. It's probably a deserved point on balance of play. Uh, left it late. It's, it's also a good point, actually, away at Gillingham, who've won so many games recently, which means in the automatic promotion picture, George, that the big winners were Stevenage, who beat Wimbledon 2-1. Um, served a tasty dish by Curry, who set up the winning goal for them. Yeah, a, a moment that was, you know, for Stevenage, who have been, um, as I said just a second ago, one of those teams who, especially early in the campaign, could put in these unbelievable performances, but they were so dominant. They've been few and far between. And it does feel like if Stevenage are to get over the line, are to get this automatic promotion, they're probably going to stumble over it. And, and with these kinds of three points where they weren't 
particularly good on the day um, when you, I think they only had was it four shots um, which when you consider how many you know their shot volume especially from set pieces over the course of the season is a signifier of how much they've dropped off you know they had four shots they, they scored two of them and they were presented with the opportunity because Jack Curry with a header into um, Jamie Reed's path and he was able to convert and then they because they are a very resolute defensive side were able to, to kind of see AFC Wimbledon um, away like it's it's pretty scrappy. It's not what we saw from early in the campaign from Stevenage. It feels like teams have definitely worked out how to prevent them from being so dominant from set pieces. But with that game in hand still to come, which which Bradford have as well, and I think Bradford have a big role to play in this automatic promotion race. But given they've got the game in hand on Stockport, Carlisle and Northampton, and they're currently inserted themselves in at third, and they have a home game coming up uh, tomorrow night at home to Doncaster, who are one of the out-of-form teams, one of those beach teams you feel like at the moment in, in the EFL who aren't really performing at all. Uh, three points there and, and it's going to be pretty hard for them not to, to to scramble their way in and that's what it would be. You know, it wasn't long ago, after they beat Leighton at home, they were odds-on to win the league and that wasn't that long ago. It just shows how much things have turned. Leighton Orient top on 84, Northampton second on 74, Stevenish third on 73, then three teams on 71, Stockport, Carlisle and Bradford City, who've played a game less than Stockport and Carlisle and were big winners of the weekend as well. George, literally and figuratively, uh, they went to Rochdale. They won 3-0. Richie Smallwood ran the game. Andy Cook didn't score? What? Yeah. Scott Banks is coming to the party over the last few weeks, the Crystal Palace Ooh, loanee. That a- shot that like hit the bar, I mean, I'd like to know if it was windy at Rochdale because that had some real swaz on it. Well, I remember watching some clips of him, I think before the start of the season, and he's like absolute Iron Robin vibes, just wants to cut inside off the right and shoot with his left foot. Does he run marathons in under three hours? I reckon he probably could. Um, And he's been a threat at times uh, over the season, but I feel like the last couple of weeks he's really come to play. And and, I mean, he's just clearly very, very good. Um, He's obviously got Raksaki to contend with in the the Crystal Palace stakes, but... um, uh, yes, a good player. And, and then the keeper, Lewis, as well. I absolutely love in goal for, for Bradford. It's a, a big win for them, 3-0. Um, for, for Rochdale, flicker of uh, when we discussed them last week. I mean, in order to stay up, they need to get above two teams, not just one. Uh, the closest team is six points away, and the second closest team is eight points away. I think sometimes people forget that it's not just... I suppose it's not just the tw- the team in 22nd that you have to get above, but also the team in between you. And uh, that's going to be very, very diff- difficult, especially because Crawley and Hartlepool play against each other this weekend. So um, likely one of those teams winning that is going to be pretty significant. Um, Mansfield drew one all with Grimsby. They won it up in the first half. They were looking pretty good, actually, and they just didn't get that second goal. Grimsby coming roaring back, as they can do. Um so well they do like to spoil parties Grimsby don't they George Lloyd heading home the rebound of a uh, of a penalty that was missed uh, nice line here from John Tondeur who is a Grimsby um, I think covers Grimsby as a broadcaster and or a journalist a broadcast journalist let's go with that uh, uh, this is a nice long running stat George that we can update now that Grimsby are officially safe it means that none of the 53 teams that have been promoted since automatic promotion was introduced in 1987 have been relegated in their first league season. The streak is still alive. The gap between the National League and League Two is negligible at best. And it would be very surprising if 
Wrexham and Notts County get promoted out of the National League and then neither one of those get relegated. Um, yeah, I have a feeling they might be first and second favourite for the title uh, next season, which could be lively. Um, you might be right. Yeah. Uh, does it feel a bit like one of Mansfield and Salford for the last playoff spot now? Mansfield on 66, so five back from the team above them. Uh, and Salford also on 66. They've both got a plus 15 goal difference. There's a dotted line between them. Mansfield have the game in hand and therefore the upper hand. Salford lost 1-0 at home to Cole U. That was a shock. Yeah, weird game, that one, um, where it was a classic, you know, Colchester going ahead, just a, a smash and grab um, away win. Um, I enjoyed um, Paul Robinson on Five Live this weekend referring to a game as one of the biggest smashes and grabs, which I wondered how that could be possible, having multiple smashes <laughs> and multiple grabs. Well, I wasn't going to say it, but earlier you said two director of footballs, which I enjoyed. <laughs> that's really good <laughs> I love that I can see the logic uh, and I cannot say for sure that I wouldn't that say the so exact same nice. thing I think when you and I finally get asked by someone to run the football operations at a football team we should insist that we are always referred to as our director of football <laughs> and he might turn George Alec <laughs> that would be nice that would be very nice anyone listening who could offer us that job it would be really fun up for it we've got some pretty big plans actually we've got some pretty good plans yeah we do we've we're busy sitting on Salford created a fair amount and were unable to, to break Colchester down um, Hendry with probably the best opportunity late on to do so uh, but for you know an important week for Colchester who've arrested their slide and ensured they'll be playing EFL football next season um, I think Salford's fixtures if my memory serves me right are probably trickier than um, although they've got Salford have a heart to pull at home in midweek, which is a massive game at both ends of the table, uh, especially after Crawley's win. Um, but yeah, I think it's between those two. Uh, Mansfield hosts Stevenage on Saturday as well, which is another big one. Hello, is that Mr. Slide? I'm here to arrest you. Uh, yes, arresting. You a do slide. not have to say anything, but anything you do say may be used in next season's 1 to 24s. Uh, Noah Chilvers scored a lovely goal for Cole U, and it strikes me, George, that Noah Chilvers is very good when he's playing well. But let's not get overboard here. Chilvers had an amazing first month of the season where I felt like I talked about him a lot because he's the sort of player that I love to watch. He's a ball carrier. He's a goal threat. He can create. He can carry at 50 yards and dart past, slalom past three or four, and I love players like that. He then did next to nothing for like five months. Did lose his place in the team at one point as well. And now he's having another amazing month. Uh, so can he be more consistent? That's the big question for Noah Chilwers because he's a very dangerous player. He now has a manager in Ben Garner who is a coach that we understand likes technical attacking players and getting the best out of them. I'd be really excited if Garner can unlock Noah Chilwers next season. I would expect him to be one of the most dangerous attackers in the league. But consistency is a thing, as we discussed about Leighton Orient just now, and, and he needs to show that. Uh, so we've gone through the playoff picture. How about in the relegation zone? Colu did themselves a huge favour there. They're actually unbeaten in quite a few games, Colu. I think in six overall. It was four draws and then two back-to-back -back wins has, has put them six points clear of the relegation zone. They're in 20th. Um, Harrogate drew 2-2 with Doncaster. Three games in a row that Harrogate were 2-0 down and drew 2-2. Mathematically, highly improbable and quite fun. <laughs> it speaks 
quite quite stressful for their fans. Yeah, speaks to two things. One, fantastic resilience and determination and heart. And also, t- what are they doing pre-match? What? How? Why are they set up so badly? Why can't they start games? Why are they always going two 0 down? It's terrible. They should look to they should look to sort that out. Uh, anyway, that is three points uh, over the last three games. It's four points in four games actually. Four draws for them. They're three points above the relegation zone, and they have a game in hand. It really does feel like two from three. Crawley, Hartlepool, Rochdale, uh, and we had another change, George, because Crawley's win against Tramir and Hartlepool's defeat at Newport mean that they swap place again, Crawley and Hartlepool, and, and Crawley are out of the zone ahead of a week in which they play Colchester United and then Hartlepool. The biggest week in the history, long and storied, of Crawley Town. Yes, I mean a massive, massive week for them. And, and I kind of fancy them to do it because even though, you know, their um, performances this season have been so poor, it does feel like, unlike other sides, maybe at the bottom of the league too, when they win games, which they've done a fair amount recently, um, as they did um, against Tranmere, they are fully deserving of it. You know, the, the Tranmere goal came from a ridiculous clanger from Corey Adai, which I implore you go back and watch if you haven't seen it. Um, and Tramir did miss a penalty late on. But in between the goal and the penalty miss, Crawley absolutely dominated the game, were by far the better side and, and, and deserved their 2-1 win. And I feel like if, you know, the, both Crawley and Hartlepool seem to have it in them at the moment to produce performances of, I would say, kind of like a mid-table standard, which is quite rare. Normally at this stage, the bottom end of League 2, it's so grim that you pick up a point that's basically you kind of edging towards safety. And I do really think that Harrogate are, are in amongst this right now. Um, you know, they're unbeaten in five. They're four draws in a row, as you mentioned, coming back from 2-0 down in three of them. But they are going behind in games, which is not a good trait. They're drawing against sides um, that aren't in a particularly good position themselves. You know, you're looking at the two home home draws against AFC Wimbledon and Doncaster. So even though game state dictates that they're not bad points, um, their games that Harrogate fans probably earmarked as being able to, to get the maximums. So if Hartlepool and, and Crawley can continue it, then I think it's it's Harrogate who have to improve and pretty soon. The good news for them is that they do have that game in hand. But what is that worth right now? One point. To a two-all draw, probably, you'd think. Um, yeah, I guess my concern for Hartlepool sitting here right now is how much energy did they expend over the last six weeks or so where they had that incredible run first of draws and then they turned those into wins. They went to Hartlepool on Saturday. They got absolutely slapped down, George. Absolutely slapped down. 27 shots to six. That was Newport going ahead after 17 minutes, going two goals ahead after 44 minutes. Hartlepool had no answer at all. Now, Newport are a better side under Graham Coughlin. They're a a strong side. They're difficult to play against. But that that game has concerned me, I'll be honest. Uh, Hartlepool Crawley on Saturday is going to be an absolute... M- uh, elsewhere, crew beat Walsall 2-0. Uh, note that Charlie Finney is a youngster, brother of Ollie Finney, who is now playing for Hartlepool, uh, formerly of crew. Uh, Charlie made his debut having been recalled from Chorley uh, and by all accounts looked very bright, so one to watch there. They scored two early goals, crew, uh, and saw it out comfortably. Walsall are absolutely desperate at the moment. Um, I am not at all impressed with how Mike Flynn is, is handling it. Uh, this real petering out of the season. Um, I don't think that 
it necessarily has to matter loads. I don't think it necessarily has to mean that they will just be a bad team next season just because they've had a bad end to this season. So I wouldn't be like vocally critical if they decide to ride it out and give him the summer and try and go again next season. But he's not doing himself any favours uh, either with the way that his team are performing for him uh, or his kind of reaction to these performances and defeats. Uh, Swindon nil, Barrow nil uh, was a match that happened in Wiltshire. I was a little disappointed with Barrow's lack of gung-ho approach to trying to win this game uh, with teams dropping points above them. They could have got much closer to the playoff places and against the Swindon team in pretty poor form. But I watched the last 20 minutes of the game and they seemed quite happy with a point. Or maybe they were just tired. That's fair enough. It's the end of this podcast and I'm feeling quite tired, but also fulfilled to have spoken about EFL football with my friend and colleague, George Alec, as we have been doing now for almost exactly seven years. Have you been here since the very beginning, listener? If so, we'd love to hear from you. Why don't you tweet us? Let us know what the first pod you listened to was, if you liked it, why you liked it, and why the hell are you still listening seven years on? Yeah, it'd be nice to have some reflections and some memories of seven years of NTT20 pod. Thank you for listening. Thanks to Betfair for sponsoring us. Uh, and I hope you have a great week and enjoy the full slate of games on Tuesday and Wednesday. Go out. Well.